From the crossroads of America in the Hoosier state of Indiana, this is Get In, the podcast focused on the unfolding stories and extraordinary innovations happening right now in the heartland. I'm Matt Hunkler, CEO at Powder Keg, and I'll be one of your hosts for today's conversation. I'm joined in studio by co-host Nate Spangle, head of community at Powder Keg. And on the show today is Jeff Smolian, founder, CEO, and chairman of the board of MS Communications. A friend of mine once said 30 years ago, you can't be a bad guy in Indianapolis because everybody will know it in three hours. <laughs> yeah, uh, so maybe that's true. Maybe that, but it's just people tell you something here and you can take it to the bank. Jeff Smolian is the founder, CEO, and chairman of MS Communications, a publicly traded company based in Indianapolis. Jeff's entrepreneurial journey has been a legit roller coaster ride. He has owned a major league baseball team. He started America's first sports radio station, created the world's two largest hip hop radio stations, and managed some of the world's greatest talents, including David Letterman, Ken Griffey Jr., and Don Imus. He has a one-of-a-kind story and is one of the all-time business greats. He shares a collection of amazing stories and lessons in his new book, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down. In today's show, we are going to cover some of those highlights and so much more. Jeff, welcome to Get In. Matt, Matt it's my pleasure. We are so excited about this conversation. We'll have fun. We've been talking about it over the last couple of weeks, just sharing some of our favorite stories from the book. Great. One of the things that I love about that is you are an entrepreneur through and through. Yep. And I know you come from a long line of entrepreneurs. Yeah, my dad was an entrepreneur. My grandfathers were both entrepreneurs. And I've said I'm an entrepreneur because I'm not hireable in a free society. <laughs> no corporation that's respecting itself <laughs> would hire me, so I had to do it on my own. What are some of your earliest memories of being exposed to business when you were a kid? My, my grandfather started what was the first probably one of the first automobile finance companies in the world. Yeah. And I remember when I was a little kid, I'd go down and file with my dad on the weekends or after school sometimes. My first job was as a copy boy for the Indianapolis Times. Mm-hmm. I did that when I was 16 years old, and then I worked summers at the Indianapolis Star as a sports writer. Can you explain what a copy boy is? A copy boy is someone who is basically a gopher. Uh-huh. Um, it is someone who runs around and gets stuff for the the editors and takes photos up to the Photoshop and you're basically a gopher. Yeah. And it's, it was a fun, I love that job. What do you think you got out of that, that job, the very early exposure to business? I think learning to work with people. Yeah. I think the most important thing is working with people. I had a boss who was a man named Irving Leibowitz, who was a very famous managing editor of the Indianapolis Times in the 50s and 60s. A remarkable man. I always thought that the show Lou Grant was patterned after Irving Leibowitz. <laughs> And I was in awe of him. He was yeah. a legend. He wrote a book called My Indiana, which talked about the Klan in the 20s and all the wow. things of Indiana. And probably the worst mistake I ever made, I lost a front page picture. And I'll never forget it. I had the 530 in the morning shift, and I was probably out too late sure. and, and <laughs> came in. And I'll never forget that moment when the first edition of the newspaper came out about 1030, right before it came out, that said, we don't have a picture on page one. And in those days, you had to take the pictures and iron on the back and then ship it up to the typesetting room. And one of the pictures, ironically, the one on the front page, fell behind a file cabinet. Oh, no. And they were screaming, where's the front page picture? I went back and retraced my steps, looked behind the cabinet, and there it was. Mm. And they filled in something else. But I'll never forget, he 
called me to his desk. He said, I thought you were such an impressive young man. How could you screw this up? And he yelled at me, and I think I was quaking. And, uh, and I adored him, admired him. Years later, he was visiting Indianapolis, and he was on one of our talk shows uh-huh. and, uh, at the first radio station I ran, and it was great reconnecting with him. What do you think you learned from that experience? Humility. I think you. I think <laughs> humility is learned at a very early age. And when you've screwed up the front page of the newspaper and you're 16 years old, that is a humbling experience. So humility is a very important. One of our commandments at Emmis is never get smug. Yeah. Uh, never. And I, it is a fundamental tenet of mine. I've seen people who've been successful who forget that the rules of the world apply to them anymore. It's, hey, I'm above all that now. So I think I learned that at an early age. One of the points you talk about in your book is like a self-deprecating humor. Yep. No matter how successful you got, you yep. always tie it back to that. And Where did you pick that up along the road? I don't know. When we first started out, I've just always been able to make fun of myself and tease. And I found that it really is a, it's actually a pretty good management tool. My dearest, one of my dearest friends, Steve Crane, who started with me, said your self-deprecation puts everybody at ease. And I think it's really true. And I think if the boss can make fun of himself, it, it allows everyone else to make fun of themselves. An organization where nobody can admit their mistakes and points fingers, I think is doomed to fail. Yeah. And if the boss can say, hey, I screwed up, I was wrong, it empowers everybody else to say the same. Yeah. And I think it's, a, it's been a helpful trait. Well, by all accounts, Emmis has just an amazing company culture. Yeah. And what you just shared as leading by example, understanding that people are going to mimic what the person at the top is doing, says a lot about how that culture came to be. But why, when you look at it from a standpoint of a business operator, why is company culture something that you've always prioritized? I've always felt that again, you, the old autocratic days where it's my way or the highway may have worked at a different time. I don't think it works now. And I think you absolutely have to empower people to do their jobs and treat them with respect. And I think uh, somebody said, what are you proudest of? And I said, I think I'm proudest of the culture. I'm proudest of the bond between the people. I'm proudest of the trust. I think that is probably the thing I will take away through all the ups and downs. And there have been a lot of ups and a lot of downs. What's one of your favorite core values at MS? I think that I wrote the Ten Commandments and then we added the 11th after baseball where we said admit your mistakes. We felt that was a nice added one. That's a good good Um, addition. And I really wrote them. Somebody one night in an early manager's meeting said, what are our values? And I just scribbled them on a napkin. And they became the Ten Commandments. It became very central to our being. I've had hundreds of people over the years when I'd give speeches say, I want your commandments. I want to use them. And I said, look, if they fit you, if you can live up to them, if they matter to you, that's fine. Yeah. Clearly the number one, one of them is have fun and believe in yourself. And the, my, the most important is never jeopardize your integrity. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story of my daughter. I think it may be in the book. My daughter, I would drive her to school. She was the genesis of the book, my youngest daughter, because I drive her to school every day from kindergarten until she fired me when she got her driver's license. (laughs) But we just talk about life. And early on, I'd say, Sammy, you got to have grit. Persistence is everything. Never quit. Never quit. So she had a paper in about seventh grade about the most important characteristic. And she said, Dad, I know it's grit. I said, nope, it's not grit. Grit's at the very top, but the very top is your integrity. If your word means something, nothing else matters. And if your word doesn't mean anything, nothing else matters. Integrity, even though I think it's sixth or seventh on our list, just because I was scribbling them down, that's the most important thing. If there's trust with with others, you can accomplish anything. And if there's no trust, it's hard to do anything. 
You certainly had the talent to trust at MS, and you mentioned the greatest asset of any business being the people. Yeah. You've worked with some of the greats, including David Letterman, yep. Howard Stern, yep. Don Imus. One, how did you attract those people and spot their talent in the first place? I think we inherited some. I didn't spot Ken Griffey's talent. He <laughs> sure, got that's there. fair. And we, with David, David was a weatherman. We were starting the first station I ever ran before I started Amos. Yep. And my brother said, you got to watch Letterman. And I had seen Letterman. We were, we were exactly the same age. We are five days apart. And I remembered his weekend weathercasts, which were just hilarious. <laughs> so we said, hey, we're doing a talk station. You want to do it? And he wanted to do it. He said, look, I'm going to do this for a year. Then I'm going to try to make it as a writer and stand up in Hollywood. Yeah. And he was just, it, it, it was incredible. David was, it was funny. He had an audience of a lot of 25-year-olds mm -hmm. on a radio station that was talk that basically reached 65 and 70-year-olds. So <laughs> it led to some strange occurrences. <laughs> My favorite one, which I think I've told, is I came back from lunch one day and a guy called and said, you got a problem. Letterman's a communist. And I said, <laughs> communist, what did he do? So I called him and I told him, I know there are communists in Carmel. And do you know what he told me? And I said, no. He said, you got to give them Carmel. The football team's lousy and the streets are always torn up and you can never find a good car parking place. So give them Carmel and hold the line at Fishers. And that was Dave. Dave did stuff like that all the time. He had sound effects. We had one old guy. And when you're running a small talk station, you got that many callers. And we had one old guy who was just, it was painful. He would just babble on and on and so Letterman would do finally after a few of these calls he would do sound effects you hear mooing cows and <laughs> fireworks and it was just hilarious when you look at that talent like that just raw talent yeah but then you look at how it develops yep. over a year with yep. you and of course seen others like Howard Stern yep. now with the advent of podcasting it seems like every person is hosting some yep. sort of show yep. what makes a good host Related to audiences. If your audience can get into what you do, yeah, that's it. We always talk about Howard Stern. Now, Howard Stern probably had 85% of the country that hated him. <laughs> but 15% of the country loved him. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, that's true of many of the polarizing figures. was Rush Limbaugh, Howard Stern, Imus. If the audience that they've reached loves them, you can be a gigantic success. And you probably can't do that without some people hating you. Yeah, it's probably right. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. When you think about managing those kinds of talented individuals and managing your kind of next level of leadership, yep. what are some of the lessons that you learned early on in building? Again, I think the most important thing for managers, it's very hard to let go. Yeah. It's very hard for people to say, I've been promoted to management to one level up and now I can do my old job better than the person that replaced me. Yeah. So micromanaging is always a challenge. The ability to delegate, the ability to trust your people, the ability to let them do their job. And if they're not the right person, you got to make a change. Yeah. I have a favorite saying. I have never met a human being who walked into the office in the morning and said, how do I screw up my job? It doesn't happen. <laughs> no. So everybody wants to do their job well. So your job is to give them the tools to be successful. I love that. Oh, yeah. Is there a time where you ever had to, from a business perspective, step in and say, hey, I know that you're the creative and you're the talent, yeah. but yeah. but we can't talk about this. I'll tell you one, one of my favorites with Don Imus, and Don was legendarily challenging. And Randy Bongarten, who at one point ran, managed Don and Howard Stern together, I said, what's the difference? He said, Howard what? Stern can be right on the edge of doing something. You'd sit there, you're going to lose your license. 
And then at five minutes after 10 in the morning, he'll clinically explain what he did and why he did it, whatever. He said, Don, it's just Don does what Don does. <laughs> so we had one situation where we, it was the last days of the Mariners. You have to know the context. The Tisch family had just bought the New York football giants. The Tisch family also had owned CBS. I was on the TV committee, so I was negotiating with them. Emmis was having all sorts of problems. The Mariners are having all sorts of problems. And Don did a bit on a football player named Zeke Moet that nobody probably remembers, but Zeke Moet was a tight end for the New York Giants. Before that, he had been a tight end for the uh, New England Patriots, and he had been fired, basically, for exposing himself to a female sports writer. So the Giants picked him up, and Imus was just incensed, and he bit a, did a bit about the Tisch family that had just bought half of the Giants. They still own half the Giants. Mm. About the women of the Tisch family, Mrs. Tisch and one of the daughters, walking into the locker room after a game, and Zeke Moet is exposing himself to him. And it was just a comedy bit about how crazy it was and how shocked they were. And the Tishes were not amused. So they called my friend Marty Franks, who was head of all corporate relations for CBS, and said, we want to go after the license of the people on WFAN. We're going to go after their license, take it away. Now, that's pra- scary. scary. Now, as a practical matter, you're not going to lose your license for that. But the Tishes were new. They were very thin-skinned. And my friend Marty called me and said, can you talk to Don? And I said, I can talk to Don, but Don does what Don does. Yeah. And, and I said, you can flip a coin. He'll either say, Jeff, I, I'll slow down. Or, Jeff, this is legitimate satire, and I'm going to keep going ahead with it. So I said, Marty, let me know what you want to do. And I, he said, go ahead and call him. I called Don. I'd never ask him to cut back anything because Don really never jeopardized your license. Mm-hmm. Howard sometimes did. But uh, called him and he, he backed off. But with great talent, it's always a dance. And yeah. when you have great ratings and you have talent, you see the latest with Tucker Carlson, whether you like him or not, he had tremendous power because he had three and a half million people a week watching him. And finally, he stepped over a line where the News Corp people, they knew they couldn't manage him. They just fired him. How do you have a conversation like that? Like, how did that conversation go with Don? And how do you approach that, knowing that it is a big personality? Yeah. You just, you talk to people one-to-one. And I think our success was treating people like human beings. I don't care whether it's Don Imus or Howard Stern or Ken Griffey. Yeah. Or a kid who's cleaning out the clubhouse for the baseball team. It's all about treating people like human beings. And in those instances, are you very direct or do you try to understand the person first? Yeah, I think you, you, you're probably semi-direct, I guess would be the best way to say it. (laughs) That's a good way to say it. So you talk about having to have a little bit of thick skin when you're in the spotlight, right? You're owner of a team. Can you talk about what you learned about having thick skin as you were the owner of the Mariners? Well, one of my, my, I have a couple favorite saves in the book. One is the line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. I've been on both sides. (laughs) Chapter three, I love that. Idiot to genius, the WFAN story where my guys didn't want to do it. They voted it down. They came back and said, we feel sorry for you. We still think it's a stupid idea. It launched for the first year, and it was a disaster. Um, It lost record amounts of money. Jim Lampley called it the Vietnam War of Emmis. And then we merged with NBC. Imus came on. We put Mike and the Mad Dog on. And the whole thing just clicked, and it became one of the biggest success stories. People have said to me, did you ever dream that there'd be 700 all-sports radio stations in the United States? I said, I didn't really think there'd be one. (laughs) I didn't think we were going to make it. And then the next side was owning the Mariners. And we had owned all the FM stations we could buy in the major markets. 
and we were looking for a challenge. We knew the Major League Baseball people. In those days, people said, you guys are marketing wizards. The Mariners need somebody to change the perception of that team. And I love Seattle, and we thought, this is great. And I went out, and the chapter is idiot to, or genius to idiot because I was the boy wonder. And yeah. I was speaking at every Rotary Club and Chamber of Commerce all in five states and signing autographs. One of my best friends is a lawyer here. And was the, a game with me one night. And after we were going to get a bite to eat after the game, and I had to sign autographs for 20 minutes. And he watched me sign autographs, and he said, any society that values your autograph is a society which really cannot long endure. <laughs> but I was So you're not going to sign her books. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to sign your books. But, but it was funny because you, I was the hero, and then we said we can't afford these kind of losses, so we put the team for sale, and I became a pariah. And I always said, everybody should be a pariah once in your life. I love that. What yeah. did you learn from being the pariah? I just learned that's life. I learned that is you're going to have ups and downs. When I was a college kid and a law student, I just thought life is just a straight line up. Every, you go from success to success. And that's not true of anybody I've ever met. It is a roller coaster. And mine was so crazy that it was upside down. But I think it, it teaches you. You don't learn the great lessons of life and success. You learn them in failure. I told my dearest friend, Gary Kasif, was president of the Mariners on the day we sold the team. He said, what could we have done differently? I said, really nothing. Once we bought this team, we were doomed because of the history of the town. And you needed, yeah, I joked, I said, to own the Mariners in those days, you needed to be a billionaire, which I clearly wasn't. And, and yet to own the Yankees or the Dodgers in those days, you could have had a paper route and you'd make the math work. <laughs> so it just depended. Yeah. Uh, but I said, but I think we, I, but I said, you'll look back on this and this will be the best management you ever did. And it was, I had a, a dear friend, Maria Cantwell, who actually we hosted for lunch just last week. And she talked about people still say it was the best marketing they've ever seen. And it really introduced the t team to the town and made the team hip. What were some of the things you were doing, right, in the experiential marketing realm yeah. of baseball? And what time period was this? This is in 80, 89 and 82. I have to laugh. We said, when you own the Boston Red Sox, your marketing campaign is season starts April 6th, get your tickets now. <laughs> and when you marketed the Mariners, it was like, look, we know you think we suck. But, and we did a whole campaign around that. And we did all sorts of fun stuff. I was very proud of it. The team that did it, won all sorts of sports marketing awards. My favorite spot, I think, there were a couple of them, I think was the second year. There were two guys in a grocery line, and they're standing in line, and on the next line is clearly Elvis. Wow. And the one guy says, that's him. And the other guy says, yeah, it's really him. She says, yeah, I'm telling you, that's him. Yeah, that's him. And as you pan back, they said, that's Bill Grant. And behind him, there's a guy Bill, just a regular-looking guy with a Mariner's cap. And he said, that's Bill Grant with a Mariner's cap. I can't believe that's him. Last year, two years ago, he sold his car because he couldn't get the Mariner's bumper sticker off of it. And now he's going out in public as a Mariner's fan. And then it just talked about the new Mariner's. And then the last <laughs> line is paper plastic, and Elvis says plastic baby or something like that. But we just had so much fun. It was off the wall. It was making fun. And we did all sorts of stuff. We had singles nights, and we, had, we built the first kids' area in the outfield where kids could just go play. 
in, in the bleachers. Quick break from our normal programming. I have Erica Schweier, COO from Elevate Ventures here in the studio today. Erica, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you're going to tell us a little bit about this Rally Innovation Conference that's coming up. Yep. So it's the largest cross-sector innovation conference in the world. We're going to feature six innovation studios. So think hard tech, software, sports tech, ag and food, healthcare, and entrepreneurship is going to kind of be our catch-all. I love that. So tell me what is, who's it for? Yeah, it's for innovators, entrepreneurs, investors. Honestly, anybody probably listening to this podcast. And it's going to be a multi-day thing that's multi-day. happening in downtown Indianapolis. Yep. People coming in from all over the country and maybe even all over the world to be here. That's our hope. Yep. And the dates are actually August 29th through the 31st. Perfect. And if people want to find out more information about speakers, tickets, things like that, where can they go? Yeah. So they just go to rallyinnovation.com and sign up for communications. And they can also get their tickets. I love it. You heard it here at rallyinnovation.com. We'll see, see you, you there. there. Sales and marketing is definitely one of the strengths of MS. Just yep. researching the company yep. and paying yep. attention the last decade or so. Yep. What are some of the strategies that have worked really well for marketing a media company? And what are some of the ones that you're interested to explore more now? I think the challenge with media was we were, I look back at our early marketing. We did the marketing with WFAN, which is still to me the most fun. The first spot we ever did in the company introducing WNS was probably my favorite of all time because it just, it basically said, we have no money, we have no resources, we have one thing, we just play music nonstop. So we satirized all of the strengths of the other people. In those days in Indianapolis, Gary Todd was a legendary morning man on WIBC, but by the time we were kicking off WNS, Gary had become a caricature himself because he knew every rich and powerful person. So the ad started out by saying, tomorrow I'm playing golf with the governor. And then we satirized WNAP and we satirized WFMS. And, and, and we satirized the contest because they had money to have contests. They had money to have billboards. We had no money. But yeah. what we did do is, and so our tagline was, we do let our music do the talking. Mm. And it repositioned our competitors and re- took their strengths and made them weaknesses. I was very proud of that. Yeah, that's an amazing chess move. It was. It was very, and it worked. Yeah. It, it, when they're amazing and they work, it makes you feel a lot better. It seems like music has been such a through line through all of your, yeah. your childhood, even going back to... Yeah listening to the radio before you go to bed. I always loved it, and it was my hobby. And like I said, I've got three kids, two grown kids, and a college now sophomore. And she always says, what am I going to do? I said, she said, you knew what you want to do early. I said, yeah, but I was an aberration. I loved radio, loved music and sports, so I was fortunate. Do you have some favorite music that has followed you through the years? Well, Still some funny. of your favorite classics? It's funny because on those drives to school, I got my daughter interested in like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Jackson Brown and Kenny Loggins. And one of my favorite moments of my life, we, when she graduated high school, we took her to Europe and we went to see the Stones in Milan. Oh, that's amazing. One of the, yeah. So one of the great experiences of all time. Oh, that's so that's great. Cool. Did you have a favorite song during any of their sets oh i don't know sympathy for the devil and jumping jack flash there's so many that's incredible yep <laughs> that's really cool yep i'm thinking more about the sales and marketing side of things it seems probably naturally for you coming from your father and your grandfather yep. you probably had a natural knack for selling yeah why do you think it's important for an entrepreneur to be able to sell it's funny i was a law student i will never forget one of my favorite moments we were probably in our second year law student law student and we're sitting in a bar somewhere, and a couple of girls came up to us and said, are you guys in sales? And we all just reflexively said, sales? We're not in sales. We're law students. Like, we are above selling. 
And about three or four years after we got out, the same guys were sitting at a bar said, can you imagine that? You realize how stupid we were? Every human experience is a sales experience. And if you have <laughs> children or you have a wife or you have friends, your whole life is selling whatever your idea is. So we're all selling every moment of every day. Do you have any favorite tips for selling? Yeah, understand what's important to your customer. The most important thing. If you, listen, you need to understand what makes his or her life better. What is it about his or her life that you can make better? That's the essence of sales. Understand that. Yeah. You want to sell your product. The question is, why is your product going to help their lives? It's Mm -hmm. not going to help their lives you're wasting everybody's time. I would imagine a lot of people have approached you with selling their business. Yep. You did a lot of acquisitions, have done a lot of deals over the years. Yep. Yep. What are the ones that stood out to you when you were like, you know what, this makes a lot of sense? A lot of them, I always say, the deal makes sense three years after it's done. Because <laughs> you, I have, it's like my fantasy football team. The night I draft... I got the best team in the world. Right. And 17 weeks later, I'm terrible. <laughs> um, and it's the same thing with a business deal. You never know. The deal that I laugh about the most was done with one of my best friends. With was my dear friend, Trog Keller, who ran ESPN Audio for years. And he wanted to buy my FM New York. He couldn't get approval from the Disney company to buy it. So he leased it for 12 years. So he leased it. And we laughed about it and said, this is a ridiculous deal. I'm paying you as much to lease it as I would pay to buy it. And you get it back in 12 years. And furthermore, we sold the intellectual property of the former format to a competitor. So the joke was we sold something that wouldn't make any money for $100 million. And 12 years later, we got it back. So that's clearly... <laughs> that's a good deal. <laughs> yeah, he said that deal will keep you keep me in your will forever. But <laughs> the, like I said, we've had so many deals. Some work, some don't. Yeah. Um, and you always, you really remember the successes of the failures as well. How do you recover from a deal that doesn't go as well as you thought? You just roll up your sleeves. I have developed, I guess, if I'm proudest of anything, the resilience to say, tomorrow's another day. You win some, you lose some. Rick Cummings, who's been with me for almost 50 years, put a radio station on the air in Los Angeles, and it didn't work. And he just beat himself up like crazy. And you normally we just needle it but this one hit him so hard that you couldn't needle him about it and i just said look the research you had all of the data indicated that this was the right course of action sometimes you're going to be wrong if we can make rational decisions i can live with being wrong yeah because you're going to be wrong sometimes the market changes sometimes tastes change but if you run a business where you're rational you'll succeed more than you fail when it comes to assessing that of using data and all this information to make a decision versus gut and instinct. What do you rely more on? I think it's a combination. I was talking to a friend who's in in pro football and he said, we're now getting to the data era. And I was, I lived through the very beginning of that in baseball where the scouts would say I was a five tool guy. And I'll never forget one of my favorite stories. We had a guy who had hit 350 everywhere he went. And our scouts said, no defense, not any speed, doesn't hit the ball with pop. He's not a five-tool guy, and somebody else started. And I always said, this is a guy who's hit 300 everywhere he went. Two weeks into our first season, they put him at third base. When he came out of the lineup, it was Edgar Martinez. He went in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> so that's one of those examples where data probably told you a different story than scouts. On the other hand, scouts can see intangibles. There's always a marriage of art and science. There just always is. There always will be. 
it strikes me that there's so many parallels between yeah. baseball and business. Yeah. Are there other parallels that you noticed being involved in both worlds? I think any business depends on. I love one of my closest friends came up from Los Angeles and he watched us work one day. He said, my God, you guys are killing yourselves. And then you go to the ballpark for three hours. And I said, yeah. And the worst part is it's not a good business. And then you go to the <laughs> ballpark and you expose your flaws in front of 30,000 people every <laughs> night. But a business is business. We've done all sorts of things. And what we found is, I've always said, we're smart enough to know what we don't know. So whenever we, whether it's baseball, whether it's a research company, now it's dynamic pricing or sound masking or TV or international radio or magazines, we were always able to attract people who filled in gaps. We were pretty good strategic thinkers. We were pretty good at sales and marketing. We were pretty good at overall finance. But we were always knew that when there was a need, we could spot the need, and we didn't have the hubris to say, yeah, we got this. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of people get into one business after they've been successful in another, and they go, I got this, I know this. I once had an automobile dealer who said, I want to buy a radio station. Okay. He said, I said, much about it. Oh, I listen all the time, I know. I listen all the time. Yeah, I want to buy it. I said, let me ask you a question. I want to buy an automobile dealership. How would I do? So you don't know it. You don't understand it. You got to understand. You got to understand the back end. You got a service. You got a body shop. You got to. And I said, I think that might be true in my <laughs> business as well. That there's stuff that you know. So it just depends. But yeah. Are you ready to transform your brand with award-winning video content that captures your vision and connects with your audience? Check out Alchemy, the experts at building your brand using video. From story-driven social media snippets that leave a lasting impression to compelling full-length documentaries, they have got the expertise to take your brand to the next level. Alchemy is actually our video partner here on Get In, and they do amazing work. All the videos across social, uh, across YouTube, all that is done by Alchemy, and they're an amazing partner to work with. Reach out to me, Nate, at Powder Keg, or check out alchemyfilmco.com to get connected with Alden and his team. They will take care of all of your video needs. So you tended to it. Can you talk a little bit more about what MS is up to today? Yeah. So you guys ended up, I'll let you tell the story. But. Well, we got, we, and I love the business, but we finally realized about six or seven years ago that radio was a business that was just never going to go away, but just a slow, steady decline. And I always said, when you're pushing water uphill every day, it wears everybody out. So we made the transition. We were fortunate. We've sold everything in magazines and radio. We got down to TV earlier. So we were fortunate. We paid almost off almost $2 billion of debt. We have no debt. We have th three, now four businesses that we're involved in. A sound masking business that controls sound in offices and studios. Of course, I always say, only I could buy a business that controls sound in offices and hospitals <laughs> right before a pandemic that closed <laughs> all offices and hospitals. <laughs> but we love that business. We have a dynamic pricing business that's really been fun. Mm. And they control, they pr price attractions, performances, they're getting in all sorts of areas. Everything from the Royal Albert Hall to the LA Philharmonic to the ISO here, and just all sorts of so things. Locally, do you guys, don't they price the zoo yeah, here? They yeah, they price the zoo. Yeah. Uh, they price everything. The zoo is one of the first clients. They price the Children's Museum. They price the symphony. I think we're doing something for the IMA, but we do all sorts of when stuff. When you say they price it, can you talk through that a little bit yeah. and like the science or the technology behind that? We have PhD economists. We are now getting ready to scale it by automating a lot of the procedures, but they will find the optimal price for every unit of inventory. And we have such a niche in, you can dynamically price anything. You price traffic flow in cities. You can price 
target. You could place, obviously, airlines started it, but finding the op- optimal price for a unit of inventory at any given time. What's this company called? Diginex. Digi- very, and it's based very, here in India, based right? Based here in Indianapolis. I love that. Yeah, they've done it. One of my great guys, Greg Lowen, has done it and really built it from scratch. We inherited it, but it was a failing enterprise, and they've done a great job. How long have you all been working on that? We've done it about seven years. Oh. Yeah. So now so we should get Greg on the show sometime. Yeah. yeah he's, he's, he's a wizard. Yeah. yeah it Greg. sounds amazing. Yeah. So I do want to backtrack a little bit. So you started your first radio station in 1980? 1980. The first one actually went on the air July 4th, 1981. That was when Emma started. Emma started July 4th, 1981. So almost... 35, 40-ish years in this business. Was it hard to sell all that off? Yeah, very hard. It was very hard, but I knew it was time. When we sold Power 106, which was really the station that skyrocketed us even before Fan, Power 106 became the first rhythmic top 40 station in America and just exploded. And we sold it. My daughter, my oldest daughter, said, how are you doing? Or she said, Dad, I know you're at peace with this. How's Rick doing? And I said, we're both at peace with it. It was time to move on. And nobody loved the business more than we did. But again, when you push water uphill every day, it really demoralizes you. And we said, look, we want to win at businesses again. We want to grow again. And that's my mission. Looking back, do you wish you would have parted ways with radio earlier? I'm a man who has no regrets. But of course, there's one chapter in the book where Sam Zell came to me and Sam said, I want to merge J-Corps with Emmis. You run it. He was good friends with my friend Jerry Reinsdorf. Remember, Sam just passed away two weeks ago. But Sam said, you run it, and it will create a mega company. And I said, Sam, if I want to make the most money, I would do this in a heartbeat. Because I know that two years from now, you're going to say this thing's peaked, and, we'll, and you'll be right. We'll know it's peaked. But I love it, and it'll always provide a livelihood for my family. So I didn't do it, and sure enough, two years later, he sold it for billions. Whatever time I see him, he said, "Done this." And I, yeah, <laughs> hindsight's always Hindsight, twenty twenty. But I loved what I did. I have no regrets, none whatsoever. When you look at some of the newer forms of media, like yeah. podcasting and streaming, you talk yeah. about it a little bit in, in the, the book, book that yeah. the economics are a little bit challenged. Yeah. Do you yeah. think? What do you think is the path forward for that model to really work? The podcast, the streaming model is very tough because of licensing. I used to give the example that I could stream, I could take a radio station. My radio station in Los Angeles, Power 106, and my cost of distribution was $65,000 a year. That was the electricity to power the transmitter. Wow. So I could reach one person in Southern California or all 15 million with no incremental cost. But if I took my transmitter down and I streamed the same exact content, to reach the same exact people, when I did that example, I think we had 3 million listeners a week, the cost to reach them with data, my cost to reach them and their cost to get the data from me, and my music licensing was several million dollars a year. That is an uneconomic enterprise, and no one's really made money yet. I used to speak in the industry. We've been streaming audio for 35 years. Sure. And I used to ask people, who's making money streaming? Nobody ever does. When you look at Spotify, which has been the biggest success and a great consumer benefit, yeah. they have, they're paying 65 cents of every dollar for licensing. So once you add up all those costs and you take 65 cents of every dollar, you're never going to make money. That's why they got into podcasting and yeah. they spent several billion dollars in podcasting. And what they're finding is they can't make any money there either. Why do you think that is? Because, again, anything that finds a big audience in podcasting will transfer the value to them. So Joe Rogan, yeah, Ashley Flowers here. Yep. When you have that much demand and you have that much audience, you 
the creator takes the value for themselves. Mm -hmm. You don't need a distributor. Mm -hmm. You've got 3 million podcasts and probably a thousand, no, less than a, probably 200 of them make actual real money. And those 200 are saying, I can distribute this on my own. Yeah. So that's the short answer. It, it strikes me that a lot of the early success of Emmis was being yeah. in those major metros, yeah. New York and yeah. LA. Yeah. Do you think it's possible that the money for podcasting and streaming, and I know less about streaming, yeah. but could be in the long tail of lots of different shows? I think it can. I think the question is, my favorite thing, is this a business or a hobby? Sure. And if it's got enough audience to be economically viable, either through ads or subscriptions, it's a business. Yep. If not, it can be something you love doing and it's rewarding, but it's a hobby. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I always, when I speak to business classes, I always say, guys, get into something that's a business, not a hobby. Yep. If you have a reasonably strong desire to feed yourself and your family. <laughs> <laughs> you Good guys advice. are doing some work with podcasting, right? With Underneath Emmis. We are doing, we have a business called Sound the Brands, headed by Rick. And basically what we do is we take in laundry. We create content for major brands that want for Trader Joe's and AAA and Pepsi and Nat Geo and all the companies who say, you guys, we want to extend our brand and you guys are good creators. So what do you look for when you're purchasing a business outside the ordinary of like yeah. P&L makes sense? I think it's just, where do we think we can help this business grow? Mm. Is there something about us that can make this business grow? Yeah. That's X factor of, yeah. we have this strength, they have this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. what we do. Yeah, yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Is, do you have an example of how that's worked out? It's never worked out. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it's that humility. It's always, yeah, we got in the magazine business many yeah. years ago and we said, gee, actually a cousin, Debbie Paul, was the editor of Indianapolis Monthly. And they did it, and she called me one day and said, I hate to do this, I gotta do a story on you. So we did a story, and I got interested in the economics of the magazine, and yeah. we ended up buying it. And what we added was sales and marketing to really great editorial, and we played that to Texas Monthly and Los Angeles Magazine and Orange County Magazine and Atlanta and Cincinnati. So we built a little magazine empire. That's by, so cool. By, mark, by really ma marrying our strengths with the strengths of editorial. I love that. Over the course of your career, I'm sorry, I'm seeing yep. this, this thread of yep. Power 106 in Los Angeles, yep. big presence in New York, yep. but you guys were headquartered in Indiana. Absolutely. What, tied, what kept you here? It's home. My family's been here 130 years. I get asked that question. People, you're in New York, you're in LA, you're San Francisco, you're Washington, Chicago. What are you doing there? And it's home. I love it. I've, been a I've had a chance to be a part of helping transform it. My political views are well known, and they may be a little bit out of favor in Indiana these days, but I've always tried to fight the good fight and make this a better place to live, and I'm very proud of it. And it's been very rewarding staying here, and I this is where I'm from, and this is where I'll... But are there key characteristics that are like differentiate doing yep. business in Indiana versus doing business in L.A. or New yep. York? When somebody tells you something in Indiana, you usually take it to the bank, and I'm very proud of that. I'm upset, frustrated about some of the things I think we make hiring and attracting and keeping talent in the state that bother me. But the genuine nature of people here, I love. A friend of mine once said 30 years ago, you can't be a bad guy in Indianapolis because everybody will know it in three hours. <laughs> yes. uh, so maybe that's true. Maybe that, but it's just people tell you something here and you can take it to the bank. That was a quote that resonated me from your book yeah. was you saying, it's like, you can't be a bad guy in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. 
bad yeah. girl, bad whoever, yeah. because it is a very well connected ecosystem. Yeah, it is. And it's, and I admire the people. I have made more friends here and love this community a lot. I love that you love this community and this community definitely loves you back. You. Uh, we are so grateful for you sharing some of your story here on Get In today. We have one last segment of the show, which is our favorite segment. It's okay. very Hoosier centric. Okay. It's called the lightning round. Okay. So Nate, do you want to explain uh, the lightning round? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to read three questions for you. Okay. And the name of the game is speed. First okay. thing that comes to your mind, all based around Indiana, okay. Hoosier state. Go ahead. So outside of the amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem, what is Indiana known for? Corn. <laughs> there we go. All right. Good, good. What is one hidden gem in Indiana? Rebounding with the Pacers. No, oh. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm trying to be funny here. <laughs> <laughs> we have no rebounding with the Pacers. I love it. I love it. No, I, it I is mean, a hidden gem. Hidden. Yeah, we have no rebounding with the Pacers. No <laughs> offensive line play with the Colts. That <laughs> no, I think just the nature of the people. Seriously, people here are real. People here are, and I think that makes all the difference in the world. That's amazing. And then final question of the lightning round. All right. Who is someone that we need to keep on our radar? Someone who is doing big things. I always think of Scott Dorsey. I love Scott. Scott's a very talented guy. And I realize you guys would say, Dorsey's already at the top anyway. But to me, he's like a young up and coming guy. You know? <laughs> so I always look at Scott. He had the building exact target next to me. And hey, young. There's a lot of people. Another one of my dearest friends is David Barrett at Glick. A really talented guy. I'm sure I could rattle off 50, but those are the two that popped in my head. I love that. Thank you so much for your insights and your answers here. Thank you for writing this book. Again, never ride a roller coaster upside down. For those of you listening, watching at home, just an amazing book. And for those in the Indianapolis area, or if you want to go on a road trip, we do have a copy from the Central Indianapolis Library that we are going to ask Jeff to sign and we're going to put back in the library so that it is a hidden Easter egg and we challenge you on TikTok and LinkedIn and Instagram, wherever you're at, see if you can find the signed copy at the Central Indianapolis Library. Jeff, thank you so much. My this pleasure. was amazing. My pleasure. Loved it. This is so Loved great. Every minute of it. Thank you. Guys. This has been Get In, a Powder Kick production in partnership with Elevate Ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for a guest or a segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powder Keg executive community, check out powderkeg.com premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, you should listen up because Casted for Startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.